we praise you uh, for this great work in Amy's life. And may she see that it's because of you. May the doctors see that it's because of you. May you be honored. May you be glorified. And as we bring our tithes and offerings, may you be honored. May you be glorified. May it be the desire of our hearts to glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Please remain standing in honor of God's Word, continuing on in the book of Acts. And this morning, we're looking at Acts chapter 12, verses 20 through 25. And this is really a continuation of last week's message in some ways. Here it's coming against the church. He thinks he has the church, but God has some other ideas. And we will see a great reversal in this text. Acts 12, verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank You for the triumph of Your Word. Nothing can stop it. And even though Your people may be chained or killed, Your Word is not chained and Your Word is not destroyed. But Father, Your enemies will be converted or they will be destroyed. They will not get away with what they do against your people. You are a God of justice. And we praise you for that. And Father, we thank you for the church that you are building day by day. Thank you that the church will not be stopped. Thank you that even the gates of hell will not prevail against her. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. A number of weeks ago, I was listening to a message by John Piper, and he made a statement that really grabbed my attention. He said, "The Christian Church in America suffers from about a hundred, or excuse me, 350 years of dominance and prosperity." What he means by that statement is part is that for most of American history, being Christian has been viewed as normal and good and patriotic and culturally acceptable and even beneficial. We Christians are used to being in the majority. Therefore, we expect our values related to things like the meaning of marriage or the sanctity of life or the illegal use of drugs like marijuana and fiscal responsibility to be embraced. And not only do we expect these things to be embraced nationwide, but we expect them to be joyfully embraced and even lauded. So, 
When our precious virtues and traditions are mocked, rejected, and voted out of office on election day, we hardly know how to pick ourselves up and continue on. Now, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but could it be that the days of the so-called moral majority or the Christian majority don't exist in our generation? As many of you know, Gallup has been taking polls and surveys for years. And if you define a Christian, not just as one who says, I believe that God exists, but if you define it a little more narrowly as a person who believes in the inerrancy of Scripture, person who believes in the deity and sinlessness of Christ, person who believes in absolute values, person who believes in a literal heaven and hell, person who believes that we are saved by grace alone, through faith, and Jesus Christ alone, then you find that the percentage of those who actually are Christians is a minority. And I think that that minority of Christians in America will have implications during different elections and what's voted on. Now, you might be thinking that it's time to be self-pitying and to just wallow in the muck and mire of despair. Uh, But believe it or not, in spite of that, I am still very optimistic And I'd like to read from Peter Lightheart's book, uh, The Kingdom and the Power. And as I do, I want to say that I agree with what he says here wholeheartedly. Peter Lightheart writes, Truly, we face a vicious attack from powerful enemies in high places. And yet, in the midst of the battle, we are very blessed. Despite the war, we can give thanks. We constitute the greatest nation on the face of the earth. She is, in fact, the greatest empire that has ever existed. Truly, the last great hope of mankind. We enjoy a degree of justice and liberty, prosperity and peace beyond the imagination of any other people. We have an unsurpassed heritage, boasting many of the greatest thinkers, artists, and leaders in all of human history. Indeed, Despite the present conflict and turmoil, we will overcome our adversaries and endure forever. No matter how powerful our enemies, no matter how vicious their attacks, we will rise up to advance across the globe. And other nations will, like birds seeking refuge in a spreading tree, find security in the shade of our branches. We will defeat any and all enemies within and without in our cosmic warfare. Lightheart then says, Do these last statements surprise you? Have I lapsed into an overheated rhetoric of an extremist patriot? I assure you that I am completely serious, and I believe every word that I have written. But, perhaps that little pronoun we has confused you. You may have assumed that we meant we Americans, or we conservative Americans, or we right-thinking Americans. What I have been describing is in fact not the United States of America, but the church, the priestly kingdom, and holy nation of God, 1 Peter 2.9. Men and women find true liberty, peace, and joy only in the church. She is the original melting pot, 
Only citizens of heaven have access to true riches and enjoy true security. The kingdom of God is the cosmic tree in which the nations find shelter. It is the church against which even the gates of hell shall not prevail. The kingdom that's advancing across the globe and will not be stopped is the church. And it's imperative as we talk about our battles and spiritual warfare that we be real clear about who the we are and who the they are. And we need to be real clear about the weapons that we use in this warfare. Last week, I referred to verse 5, Acts 12.5. So, Peter was being kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made to him by God, by the church. John Stott writes about this verse, Here then are two communities, the world and the church, arrayed against one another, each wielding an appropriate weapon. On the one side was the authority of Herod, the power of the sword and the security of the prison. On the other side, the church turned to prayer, which is the only power which the powerless possess. So we need to remember that the weapons we use in our warfare are very different from the weapons of this world. Turn to Ephesians 6, if you will. Ephesians 6, beginning at verse 10, is of course that classic passage on warfare. It's a passage that describes the armor of God. And beginning in Ephesians 6.10, Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. So we need to have truth. And having put on the breastplate of Righteousness. We need righteousness for this battle. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, we carry with us the gospel in all circumstances. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. We go forth in this battle with faith and take the helmet of salvation. We have the assurance of salvation with us. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to the end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the Gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. We need to remember that primarily our war is what some have called a holy war, a spiritual war. Now, don't misunderstand, I am not advocating a uh, retreatist mentality. Uh, I'm not saying that we don't get politically involved. I'm not saying that we don't be culturally engaged. I think we should be. But we need to remember that the war on education, the war on 
the family, the war on popular culture, the war on an ever-expanding government, uh, a war on taking care of our environment is secondary to the primary war, which is holy war. Richard John Newhouse made a great statement that I think we really should consider. He said, the first political task of the church is to be the church. The first political task of the church is to be the church. Now think about that for a moment. If the church was just the church, what kind of impact would it have for politics or culture? Uh, let's consider a place in the Middle East as opposed to Christianity, um, an Islamic nation like Syria. Uh, imagine I was able to go and talk to the Syrian government and say, you know what, I would like to bring in five other pastors with myself and I'm just wondering if a half a dozen, pa- half a dozen pastors could come into your nation and we could each plant churches in different parts of the nation. And I want you to know, none of us are going to run for political office. Um, all we're going to do is just worship our God, sing praises to Him, and, and pray to Him. We're, we just want to be the church. Would that be okay with you? What do you think the response would be? Absolutely not. Why? What, what threat is the church to their culture? Church is a huge threat because if the church would continue to grow and uh, get converts and people were won over to the Christian faith, um, it would topple the government and transform the culture and they know that. If the church would just be the church, it would transform the culture, it would transform politics. Now, what does it mean for the church to be the church? Obviously, it means many things, but let me uh, apply the KISS principle. Keep it simple, speaker. Uh, to just be the church uh, means to fulfill the Great Commission. Uh, every single gospel ends with the Great Commission. We hear it every single week. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And as we go forth uh, seeking to make uh, disciples of all nations, we, we pray the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Jesus taught us how we should pray as we go forth. And, and we pray, first of all, that God's name would be hallowed. That it would be reverenced. That it would be exalted. And then we pray that His kingdom would come. And Martin Luther reminded us that when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are praying for the kingdoms of mankind to go. This is a very aggressive prayer. When we're praying for God's kingdom to come, we are praying for His enemies to be defeated and in their place for God's kingdom to be set up. And then what follows when that happens? Thy will be done on where? On earth as it is in heaven. This is how I think it works. God's name is exalted. His kingdom comes. His kingdom grows. It's expanded so that His will is done more and more on earth as it is in heaven, which means that transforms culture. 
think of what the Reformation did in Germany, Geneva, Switzerland. When God's kingdom comes, it has an impact on the culture. Now, maybe this is controversial, but I don't think in the truest sense America is a Christian nation. But I do believe we were founded on Christian principles and we are reaping the benefits of that because it has, it has had a huge impact on our culture. What else does it mean for the church to be the church? Well, in the book of Acts, just quickly surveying the book of Acts once again, it means that we are witnesses of Jesus Christ. Remember, that's how Acts begins, Acts 1.8. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth until the Gospel goes into every nation and the nations are disciples. But before that can happen, the believers needed the Spirit. Now, why did they need the Spirit? Because the Spirit is needed to empower us for the task that God has. Again, let me read from Peter Lighthart. And I've, I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to read it again because this is, this is powerful. Lighthart writes, In the Bible, when the Spirit descends, someone usually gets hurt. And then he gives a few examples. When the Spirit came upon Jephthah, he defeated the Ammonites. When the Spirit of power came upon Samson, he went out and killed someone or something. A lion, 30 men of Escalon, or a thousand men with a donkey, a donkey's jawbone. When the Spirit came upon King Saul, he gathered the people and slaughtered the armies of Nahash and Ammonite. Jesus received the Spirit at his baptism immediately before entering into combat with Satan. Jesus was not anointed with the Spirit of God so that he could retreat into the mountains or so that he could sense God's presence, the Spirit was given to empower him in combat. We have received the same Spirit, and for the same reason, to empower us to fulfill the mission God has given us. The Spirit was not poured out so that the saints could experience warm fuzzies, or so that they could feel so good. He was and is given to empower God's people for holy war. That's why we have the Spirit. Because Jesus has given us a mission and we are involved in a battle, a war, and we need strength. Therefore, we have the Spirit to help us and empower us as we go forth and we fight in this holy warfare. Turning ahead to Acts 2, verse 42 and following, we have the seminal passage for the church being the church. We're told, and they devoted themselves the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, in other words, communion, and prayer. That's what the church was committed to. And we see the church taking care of the needs of one another. And then what are we told was the result of that? And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I love that passage. I think that passage tells us if the church would just be the church. If the church would just be devoted to the things that it's supposed to be devoted to, God would bless it and it would grow. So we have to be careful not to get off track. We need to be careful to keep the main thing the main thing. The Word of God, fellowship, communion, prayer. 
taking care of the needs of one another as well as reaching out into the community as well. And that's what we see happening in Acts 3. We see what some have called mercy ministry. This is just the apostles going forth, helping those who are in need. In Acts 3, it's a, it's a lame beggar who was healed. And then as they go forth, just trying to do good things. Again, notice the apostles aren't uh, striving to, to take the positions of political power. They're just, they're just trying to help people. Uh, they're just going up to the temple to pray and they happen to see someone in need and they take care of that. And as a result, everybody watching says, that's wonderful. Look, look how nice and helpful these Christians are. As a result of that, the church just being the church, just doing ministry inside and going out, doing acts of mercy for people in need, opposition arose. And now we begin with the imprisonment. <laughs> Because they're just trying to be the church. Just trying to help people and tell people about Jesus Christ. And this is when the opposition begins. And we had what I called earlier the three strategies of Satan. The first strategy was external opposition, imprisonment, persecution. And the church overcame that through prayer. When that didn't work, uh, Satan turned to internal corruption. We saw that with Ananias in Sapphira. If he can't come to the church from without, he'll try to destroy the church from within so that it collapses from the inside. And the answer to internal corruption is church discipline. And then when that didn't work, the third strategy we saw in Acts 6 was ministerial distraction. This is the subtlest and perhaps the most successful of all of Satan's strategies. If we can't stop the church through persecution, if we can't have it collapse from the inside because of corruption, we'll have them just get off track. In other words, we'll have the church do many good things, good deeds, social action perhaps, but they'll neglect the most important things, the Word of God and prayer. How successful do you think Satan has been? I'll let you answer that question for yourself. Now, once again, as the church is just being the church, uh, minding its own business, as it were, opposition will come. It's inevitable. Uh, Stephen was just a deacon in the church. He was, he was just trying to see to it that widows got food so that they could live from day to day. And then he became a little bolder and he told people about Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, he was stoned to death. And we might be tempted to think, Okay, there you go. The church is advancing. But Stephen is stoned to death and he stopped. Yes? But let's remember what our second century father Tertullian said. The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. And by that statement, he meant that at least three things happen when a Christian is martyred. Uh, Number one, they give glory to God. Number two, uh, the unbelievers are converted. And number three, believers are inspired to continue on. Now, let's quickly just consider each one of those. They're all found in Philippians. So, if you will, turn to Philippians. And this is important. Because we need to realize that even imprisonments and death don't stop the church. And, and in some way, they actually catapult the church. Uh, many of us are familiar with Jim Elliott. 
And the only reason we're familiar with Jim Elliot is because he became a martyr. And his story was told. And because of his death, thousands of men and women went into missions. The best thing that ever happened for the Gospel through Jim Elliot was his martyrdom. really was. Well, what happens when we're martyred for Christ? We show that Philippians 1.21 really is a reality where Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Many of the martyrs burned at the stake, died praying, died singing. And just, just imagine being one of the executioners of a martyr burned at the stake and you're listening to him singing to God as he's engulfed by flames that are taking away his life. You know what that tells everybody? He really does believe that it's game to die. He really does believe that to die is to just walk across the threshold and to enter into the very presence of Jesus Christ. And he's actually looking forward to it. You know what martyrdom also does? It leads to the conversion of the lost. Philippians 1, 27, 30. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the Gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the Gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. See Paul's prayer? Don't be frightened. Be strong. Be courageous. Be unwavering. What will that result in? He says, this, that fearlessness of not being frightened, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Here's the message that goes out when a martyr is singing during his martyrdom. The message is this. You're going to be destroyed. But I am going to be saved. And recall that when Stephen was stoned to death, Saul was watching. But Saul was later converted in part because of the testimony of Stephen, because he watched how Stephen died. And he must have been saying to himself, how can he die like that? How can he endure like that? And I think the Holy Spirit used that in a mighty way according to this passage right here and said, Saul, you're going to be destroyed if you don't turn. Well, he's saved. And another thing that it does, it is inspires other believers. Philippians 1, 12-14. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, he's talking about his imprisonment, has really served to advance the Gospel. I know it looks like this is stopping the advancement of the Gospel, but this is really serving to advance the Gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole Imperial Guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
Paul is saying, this is great because of my imprisonment. Most of the brothers are encouraged to be more bold in their faith and to persevere in bringing the Gospel forth. You can't stop the Gospel. You can't stop the church. The church is immortal. Indestructible. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16.18 to Peter. You are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will what? Not prevail against it. Nothing will be able to stop the church. Will there be setbacks? Yes, there will be setbacks. But ultimately, you cannot stop the church. We need to grow and our appreciation of the church. We need to grow in our love for the church of Jesus Christ. We, we really do. It's so easy to criticize the church, to criticize the leaders of the church, to criticize the members of the church. And does, does the church deserve much of the criticism that she receives? Yes, she does. But at the same time, let us remember that while the church has faults and failings and warts and whatnot, at the same time, the church is the bride of Jesus Christ. The church is, is the body of Jesus Christ, of which He is the head. Jesus is eternally united to His church. Let us remember that that the church is made up of the family of God. We are brothers and sisters. God, God is our Father. And, and let us remember that what God gave for the church. This is what Paul said to the Ephesian elders in, in Acts 20.28. 20, he said, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. It's a reminder to, to the elders. You take care of the flock. Remember, that the church was purchased with the very blood of Jesus Christ. The church is precious to God. He identifies with, with the church. Remember when the church is persecuted, Jesus is persecuted. That's why he appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus. And he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? To persecute the church is to persecute Jesus Christ. So we need to be careful how we look at the church and we really need to grow in our love for the church. You can't stop the church. And to oppose the church is to oppose God. And you will not win. Now, with, with that introduction out of the way, we now come to our passage. And before you're ready to despair, let me just say we're going to have a long introduction this morning and a short message. Again, to fight against the church is to fight against God. And Herod is going to find that out the hard way. Herod should have taken the advice of Gamaliel. Turning back to Acts 5, 35-39, this is what we read when the apostles were arrested and the, the leaders were wondering what to do to these men. Gamaliel gave this advice, verse 35, and he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men, 
For before these days, Sodas rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this understanding is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. I think Gamaliel had suspicions that that's exactly what they were doing. Be very careful. You may actually be opposing God. King Herod doesn't know it, but he is opposing God. So he arrests James, the apostle, has him executed. The Jewish people all love it and he thinks this is wonderful. Now I'll have Peter arrested and he thinks he's gaining the upper hand. And, and from the outside in, it may look like that. It may look like, oh no, King Herod is coming against the church and he's having victory over the church. He's had James killed and now he's coming against Peter and it's just a matter of time before he kills Peter and then maybe he'll just continue on from there. But, but what happened to Peter? Was he able to execute Peter? He was not able to execute Peter. I was talking to Larry after the service about this passage and he said, it's amazing how many parallels we have between the death and resurrection of Jesus and the death and resurrection of Peter, if you will. And I think he really does have a good point. Uh, they were both seized and arrested. And it's very interesting how Luke sets up this passage. Um, they were waiting till after the Passover to kill Peter. They were doing the same thing with Jesus. And we mentioned last week that Jesus was between two thieves and Peter is between two soldiers. They were both bound. They're bound differently. Jesus was bound by nails and uh, Peter is probably bound by chains. Uh, they were both uh, kept watched by Roman guards uh, to make sure that they wouldn't escape. And then after the death of Christ, you'll remember that his side was, was poked. Uh, Peter's side is poked by the angel. And then he gets up. And then the angel opens the door of the prison, sets him free. The angel opened the door uh, to the tomb, rolling away the stone. And then uh, you remember when Jesus appeared, uh, he was recognized to Mary by his voice when he said Mary. Peter is recognized by his voice. And then in this case, not Mary, but Rhoda goes and tells the other people and they don't believe it. Just like when the women went and told the other people, he's risen from the dead. They didn't believe it. And then Peter said, go and tell the other disciples. And Peter said, go, tell the other disciples. And then afterwards, the guards had to, had to explain how Jesus could escape. And they have to explain how Peter escaped, even though the turnout is different. And I think we really do have, for all intents and purposes, in this passage, the resurrection of Peter. He is as good as dead. That's how Luke is setting up the story. He's showing us Peter. And we're going, oh no, he, he's doomed. He's dead. He's a goner. No, he's not. 
because we serve a God who raises the dead. And you cannot stop a God who raises the dead. And we pick it up in verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, We don't know the details. We don't know why he was angry with these people. Uh, But he was. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, uh, probably through some kind of bribe, uh, the king's chamberlain, uh, his personal assistant, uh, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So they wanted to make sure that this food continued to come to their nation. Otherwise, they would starve to death and they they would perish. So they wanted to be on good terms uh, with King Herod and Blastus was going to give them an audience with the king. Verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. That's how Luke describes it. Now, what's fascinating is that this event right here is described by Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, in his Antiquities. And here is how... um, Where'd my paper go? Here is how Josephus describes it. Let me see that other paper. Do I have it? Here it is. Good. Yeah, so glad, glad I found it. I want to read this to you because this, this is fascinating. It, it really is. Here's what Josephus says. Herod put on a garment. Okay, that's what Luke says. Put on a garment. But then Josephus adds, holy of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning at which time the silver of his garments being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner. So that's fascinating. So Josephus is telling us this robe that he put on was made of silver. The sun is shining and the king looks like a god as light is emanating from his robe. And then we read, And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Did they really think He was a God or were they just trying to flatter Him so that they could feel good and they could continue to get their food? We don't know. In either case, we do know this. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck Him down because He did not give God the glory. That's fascinating. Again, let me turn to Josephus. Upon this, talking about the adulation that was bestowed upon him by all the people claiming him to be a god, upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. Which is fascinating. Even from the perspective of Josephus, He didn't rebuke them for what they were saying. He just drank it all in because he thought this was wonderful because of all the praise that they were heaping upon him. And as a result, he 
was struck down. Josephus says a severe pain arose in his belly, which became so violent that he was carried into his palace where five days later he died. So again, putting the two accounts together, he is struck down uh, something perhaps by worms that were in his intestines that ate away at him for the next five days until he died. But in any case, they see it as the judgment of God because Herod didn't give God the glory. By the way, this is the judgment that will fall upon all unbelievers unless they give glory to God. In Romans 1, Paul says that everybody knows there's a God from creation. But although they knew that God existed, they neither gave glory to God or gave thanks to God. Which is a reminder about how important thanksgiving is and how important giving glory to God is. Unbelievers are going to be judged in parts because they did not render glory to God and they did not give thanks to God for all the good blessings that He bestowed upon them throughout their life. It's a very serious thing not to give glory to the living God. Uh, We did not make up this mission statement. We exist for the zealous furtherance of the glory of God. We didn't make that up. Nothing could be more biblical than to exist for the glory of God. And if you do not give God the glory, you will perish. As King Herod found out the hard way. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Died a terrible, violent death because he refused to give glory to God. God is a God of justice. God will come against the enemies of the church. They will be converted or they will be judged. Our God is a God of justice. Our God is a God who brings about vindication for His people. And then I love this great juxtaposition. Verse 24, But! (laughs) But! And I, I think Luke is saying it like that. But! The Word of God increased and multiplied. King Herod coming against the church was struck down. But the Word of God continued to go forth. The Gospel continued to advance. More and more nations are reached. The kingdom is growing. You can't stop the Word of God. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing the offering for the famine release, bringing with them John, whose other name is Mark. And then in the next chapter, we're going to see that Barnabas and Saul are set aside by the Holy Spirit for the work of missions. And we're going to see the first missionary journey in the book of Acts. So the Gospel is going to continue to go forth. Because you cannot stop the church. And don't you just love the great reversal that takes place in this chapter. It begins with Herod on the throne calling the shots, killing the church, imprisoning the church, but then you have the church praying that God would comfort Peter, that God would deliver Peter, 
that, that God would somehow stop Herod? And he answers their prayers. He answers their prayers. Remember the weapons of the church, the Word of God, prayer. God acts when His people pray. Should I state it more directly? Enemies of the church get struck down when God's people pray. So we have a great reversal in this passage. We have from death to life and we have from the defeat of the church to the victory of the church and the continual advancement of the church. You cannot stop the the church of Jesus Christ. She will prevail. We are a part of something that must succeed, that will succeed. Which is why it's such a joy to be part of the church and why we can be optimistic regardless of what we see taking place around us. Regardless of how you interpret the times, regardless of how you interpret politics, we can be confident of this. The church will continue on. The church will not be stopped. All praise to Jesus Christ, the head of the church. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You. The church militant is also the church triumphant. It cannot stop. And Father, help us, sometimes weak, sometimes cowardly Christians, to continue on. May we hear the words of that great hymn. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war. Help us to march forth, knowing that we will be victorious, knowing that we can't stop. So Father, may we go forth with truth, righteousness, the peace of the Gospel, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times, crying out to You for help, for strength, for deliverance, for guidance, for direction, knowing that You will answer. Father, thank You that we can gather together this morning as the church and rejoice in how You're working with her. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.